In the Middle East, there's a very special mountain, and it has two names. It's a bit like our, our one of our mountains, well, many of our mountains, actually, but I'm thinking of Mount Taranaki and Mount Egmont here in New Zealand. Now, this one in, in the Middle East, you'll see a, a map here where uh, many people believe it is. This mountain goes by the name of Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai in our Bibles. The Bible uses both names. Very special place, because this is the place when God took the children of Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus. He took them over here to this place called called Mount Sinai. Now, today the Arabs call it Jebel El-Laws, something like that. But it was a very special place. God told Moses to come up the mountain to him, and it was here that God gave Israel a covenant. You know what a covenant is, I hope? A covenant's agreement between two parties, and this was between God and His people, Israel. And as often the case, there's in covenants, there's a lot of laws and things that need to be met in the agreement. And God had many laws, not just Ten Commandments. Yes, God did have Ten Commandments. But in fact, uh, you, if you read your Old Testament, there was about 613 laws. And part of the covenant included uh, laws, but many of those laws had to do with the sacrificial system of Israel. Why would God do that? Well, God cares about worship, number one. Uh, He cares about worship. He's trying to teach you something. He was trying to teach Israel about sin and himself and that God is holy. And a part of this, this whole system, this covenant, God also said that he would dwell with them in a tent called a tabernacle. You say, what's, what's the purpose of the tabernacle? Well, one purpose is that it pointed to Jesus Christ. Now, how did it do that? Well, God was very specific about the pattern of the tabernacle. In fact, God spent 50 chapters in your Bible explaining all about this tabernacle and what was to take place in it and all the various furniture, what it was to look like and be made out of, and even the tent itself had specific requirements and dimensions. Very, very specific. Fifty chapters to do that. So let me just quickly show you how the Old Covenant points to Christ before we see what Hebrews 8 says. Uh, Here's basically what it looked like. First of all, there was an outer court which was about 50 meters long by about 25 meters wide. The, and then if you walk through that sort of called the, the first gate there, there was a bronze altar that stood in the outer courtyard. That was where the sacrificial animals were, altered, or were sacrificed. It was done on that bronze altar, and their blood was shed for the sins of the people. And so the altar typifies Christ's redemptive work on the cross on our behalf, where His blood was shed on behalf of His people. And then you come next to this bronze basin, or some Bibles might call it a laver, but it stood also in the outer courtyard there between the altar and the tabernacle proper. The basin was provided only for the priest, and they were to come and they were to wash their hands in that basin before they were allowed to enter into the tabernacle. And so the basin speaks of Christ as our sanctification. We are, we are cleansed, we're set apart from our sin unto God. And so as believer priests, 
uh, Christ cleanses us from sin. We are washed. And then you have the tabernacle tent itself, which was not really big, really. It was smaller than this room we're in currently. It was only 5 meters wide by 14 meters long. And it, would, it was divided into two sections. It a, they weren't exactly the same size. But the, the priests would come into that first section there. And it was called the holy place. And it was in this room. There was three pieces of furniture. And those f- pieces of furniture typified fellowship with Christ. Let me just point the three out to you. By the way, notice there was no seats or chairs or benches in the tabernacle. This is important to note as we come to Hebrews that, uh, well, we'll find out in a moment. But notice, first of all, that the priests would come to the table of showbread. On the table of showbread, there would be 12 loaves of bread that typified Christ. Remember, Christ is called the bread of life. And so what does he do? He sustains, because if you eat of him, you'll never hunger again. So he sustains every believer who feeds on him. Next, we had the we have the uh, the golden lampstand typified Christ as the light of the world, the only source of light that I was I'm aware of in the inside the tent. And so all who trust in Him are given the light of life. Right before the veil, there was this altar of incense, where the priests would go and they would offer up incense before God. Notice it was right there in front of the veiled to the Holy of Holies. And it typified Christ as our high priest who intercedes for us before the Father. And then you had the veil that, that separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies. The Bible, Hebrews, in fact, describes Christ as a veil. So Christ represents that veil. And then you walked into, well, it's not you, but the high priest was allowed into the Holy of Holies and it's a small room. It was only about four and a half meters cubed, which contained only one piece of furniture called the Ark of the Covenant. Now, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, you had two angels, cherubim. Their, their wings were stretched out over this seat that was called the Mercy Seat. And it was on the Mercy Seat that the high priest would come in one time a year on the Day of Atonement. And he would, he would sprinkle the blood of that unblemished sacrifice. Why? Well, that act enabled God to cover the sins of the people for one year. And you say, well, what's the connection to Christ here? Well, Christ is not only the Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice, but He is the the great High Priest who comes and He offers His own blood to not just cover sin, but to put away sin forever. And so Israel's tabernacle was a part of that old covenant, that first covenant. The old covenant, by the way, please understand, it was not a bad thing. It was never bad. In fact, it it had a very beautiful God-given purpose. It pointed to Christ. It represented Christ. It foreshadowed Christ before he came to earth it was it was something visual that God's people could see hopefully it caused them to long for no more shadows but for the reality 
But now that Christ has come, the old covenant has no more purpose. And that's a pretty bold statement to make. But the human author of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is making this point to Jewish Christians who might be tempted to go back to the old covenant, this old system. Might be. And so look what, look what God says here in Hebrews 8, verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So I propose to you today, my friends, that God wants you to hope. Hope in what, though? Hope in Christ as a great high priest who mediates a new and better covenant. Now notice in verse 1, the author shows us something important here. He, he is serving you by showing you the central thrust of his argument. In case you've missed it in the first seven chapters, and maybe you've gotten a little bogged down or lost, maybe somewhere along the way, he says what the point of his main point is. In verse 1. Do you see that? He says the main point is what? That we have this kind of high priest. The very high priest, the, the superior one he's been pointing to in the first seven chapters is here. And the argument and the flow of thought in those 
first seven chapters may have been difficult for some of us to follow, but the author is simplifying things here for us, I hope. And he's saying, hey, we have this kind of high priest. For seven chapters, he's told us what we need. Now here's the good news. He's telling us we have exactly what we need. We need Christ as a great high priest. Because in him, we have hope. There is no hope without our great high priest. You say, well, why do we have hope? Well, this chapter gives you two reasons. Two reasons for why you have hope. Number one, because Christ is a superior leader. Christ is a superior leader. How is he a superior leader? Well, that's the first six verses. I want you to notice, first of all, that Christ's service is better. His service is better. Because verse 1 says, we have such a high priest. What is is he doing? What's his service like? It says, this one is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. His service is better. And by that I mean, we see that this act of sitting down here is suggesting that Christ's work is accomplished. His task is finished. It's done he, he has finished his job, and that's why when he was on the cross, he could honestly say it is finished. And so by contrast to that, though, in the Old Covenant, the priests of Israel were always standing in God's presence. They weren't allowed to have chairs and benches in the tabernacle or in the temple. Their work was always ongoing in God's presence. They were never allowed to sit in a tabernacle or a temple. Their act of standing is suggesting something, that it. The task was incomplete, whereas Christ has accomplished his work, and so he is able to sit. And not only is Christ seated, not only is he seated, notice where he is seated. He is seated at God's right hand. And this imagery, by the way, is coming from the ancient world when it was very typical of kings of that day to surround themselves with their powerful nobles and The person to the right of the king was the most powerful, and he was the most prestigious noble in the royal court. It's a very special place of honor. So thus Christ's place here at God's right hand is a supremely exalted position. From his seat here, Christ is not finished with his work, but in fact the Bible says his work is continuing. The sacrifice is done, you understand. But Christ's work continues on. His atoning work is finished, but He is still an advocate before the Father. He is still interceding for you and for me. So that work is not done. And so Christ is not done mediating for His people. You need Him to mediate for you. You need a go-between. As First Timothy says, this, this mediator, this go-between between you and God, this God-man. And so this mediating work is the primary occupation of Christ in heaven. What is he doing? He is sitting at the Father's right hand. He is interceding and praying for believers. And so the proper response is to praise him for his ongoing service to you and to me. Number two, why is he a superior leader? Because Christ's sanctuary is better. Not only is his service better, but his sanctuary is better. Notice what it says in verse 2. It says, a minister in holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. 
Why is the sanctuary better? Because this true tent, or this tabernacle, if you will, where, where Christ serves is located not on earth, but it's located in heaven. How do we know it's located in heaven? Well, verse 1, first of all, says that Christ is at God's throne in heaven. So the context helps you. Uh, the other question of verse 2 is, well, we're talking about a holy place. It's a true tent. The Lord has set this up. Well, where is that? Well, context shows you it is in heaven. And so this heavenly location, that means something for us. It means God is the source of strength. He's able to support. He's able to enable Christ's work here. He's accepted Christ's atoning work, in fact. And this is good news because it certifies that Christ will be successful. His prayers are effective in His heavenly work. So Christ's sanctuary is better. His service is better. But number three, Christ's sacrifice is better. That's the point of verses 3, 4, and 5. We see the problem under the Old Covenant. In verse 3, every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Well, was, Christ offered Himself here, the perfect sacrifice, but He does it in a single effective act. Whereas we see the earthly priests, what do they do? They're continually offering sacrifices that could never take away sin. And verse 4 in your text emphasizes His effective work as a priest. See, Christ's effective work as a priest did not occur on earth. He wasn't a priest when he was on earth. According to the Mosaic Law, Christ was not born into the proper tribe for serving as a priest on earth. Remember the the tribe was supposed to be the tribe of Levi. Which tribe was Jesus from? From the tribe of Judah. Christ never served as a priest while he lived on earth. He serves effectively as a priest in heaven, though. His effective ministry on earth was his offering up of himself. He was the Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice for sin. And so the ministry he exercised on earth was a preparation for his ministry in heaven. So Christ's priesthood depended on that offering. Offering was perfect perfect earthly sacrifice, and then it was followed by his ascension where he went to heaven to be seated, this exalted position, the right hand of God. Notice verse 5 makes two emphases about the ministry on earth by Israel's priests. First of all, notice that the priestly ministry on earth represented only a shadow of the truly effective priestly ministry that Christ performed in heaven. Now think of a shadow for a moment. This might help you to get the picture here. What's a shadow? Well, a shadow is just a reflection of another object. It resembles that object. So like if you see your shadow, it's, 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 that, that shadow is a reflection of you. It's not you. It's, it's distorted, of course. It's a shadow. And so the earthly ministry of Christ served only as a shadow of His real priestly ministry in heaven. So it wasn't, it wasn't perfect. It was a shadow. Christ is perfect, but we, we need Christ to be in heaven 
as our great high priest. And so the work of Israel's priests only served as a preview of the atoning work of Christ. Should have caused people to be drawn to Christ. The the second emphasis here, verse 5, is that even though the earthly ministry was only shadow of the heavenly reality, God had still designed this earthly priestly ministry in great detail. What, some 50 chapters, in fact, you read in your old covenant there. And so we see a quote here in verse 5 from Exodus. And the author reminds his readers here that God provided precise instructions about all the details about the tabernacle. Now, it doesn't mean everything in the tabernacle meant something. It doesn't mean that everything pointed to Christ, but certainly the the greater things there did point to Christ. Even the small details of the tabernacle were in God's hand. And since this is true, then the heavenly sanctuary needs to be and must be a, a, a glorious place, a significant place. Is it the exact dimensions and look exactly like the book of Exodus describes it? No, I don't think so. <laughs> okay? But uh, there, there, is, there is something glorious going on there. There's a reflection, a shadow, and, and certainly great significance. So why do we have hope, my friends? Number one, it's because you have a superior leader. But number two... The second reason you should hope is because you have a superior covenant. Christ mediates the superior covenant. What does that mean? Well, what does it mean to mediate? Well, someone who mediates is called a mediator. You say, well, what's a mediator? A mediator is is someone who stands between two people and strives to bring them together. He, is, he or she is a go-between in a dispute or a conflict. And so the mediator is mediating. He's, he or she's representing both parties, trying to bring those parties together. In religion, a priest is a mediator between God and man. So praise God, we have the perfect mediator we have the perfect high priest who's mediating a new covenant. Now, why do we need a new covenant? Is there something wrong with the old covenant? Well, let me give you some reasons for the new covenant according to this text. Number one, first reason for the new covenant is the old covenant has faults. The first covenant has faults. Look at verse 7. Verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So it's obviously not faultless, then it has faults. <laughs> what does that mean? The Old Covenant has faults. What, what, makes, make, what makes it have these faults? Well, its faultiness, if you will, is rooted in the fact it was incomplete. In other words, when I say incomplete, it was not final. How was it not final? How was it incomplete? Well, first of all, the Old Covenant could not provide a priest who would make ultimate and full atonement for the sins of God's people. So that's why they had to do this all the time. They kept doing it over and over 
the high priest kept coming every year on the Day of Atonement and doing the same thing. So it was incomplete. And this fault should have been obvious to all of Israel. After all, under the Old Covenant, there was this unrelenting need for constant sacrifices. This endless repetition of sacrifices demonstrated something. It demonstrated the covenant's incompleteness. It demonstrated an inability to deal with sin once and for all. But number two, we see the the faultiness in its incompleteness that in another way, that the high priest of the Old Covenant had to make unrelenting sacrifices for his own sins before he could make a sacrifice for the sin of his own countrymen. So you had incomplete priests, incomplete high priests, and they kept dying, and then they had to be replaced. And so in light of the New Covenant, that is no gospel. That's not good news. But the author of Hebrews is now declaring that the final priest has come to save his people once and for all. Indeed, a better priest with a better sanctuary has come to mediate a better covenant enacted on better promises. You say, better promises? Yes, that's what the text says, better promises. That's the second reason for the new covenant. is because the new covenant is enacted on better promises. Promises, that's what verse 6 says. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. What are those better promises? What are those promises? Well, notice the Bible. Your Bible probably from verses 8 through 12 looks a little different. I hope your Bible has those verses indented so they look a little different. That means it's a quotation from your Old Testament. In fact, this is a quotation from the prophet Jeremiah. So Hebrews 8, verses 8 through 12, here's a direct quotation from the prophet Jeremiah hundreds of years before Christ ever came. And God was even telling Israel then there is coming a new covenant with better promises so let's go right to the source where is hebrews getting this quotation from getting it from jeremiah 31 verse 31 i put it on the screen here for you jeremiah 31 31 says behold the days are coming declares the lord when i will make a new covenant with the house of israel and the house of judah Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel on those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now, in case you're wondering, I didn't just copy that out of Hebrews 8. I actually got that from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. Do you notice the connection to Hebrews 8? Very similar, isn't it? 
That's because it's a quote from Jeremiah 31. So there you go. That is the content of the better promises that the new covenant was enacted upon. Well, let's get into the specifics here. What are the elements, specific elements of the new covenant? Number one, the new covenant, that's what NC stands for, new covenant. We see, first of all, it was written by God. It was written by God. Notice what God says in verse 8. He says, I will establish a new covenant. This new covenant is in Christ, the Messiah, and is based solely on God's sovereign terms. Not Israel's, not anyone else's. God's the one dictating the terms here. He's saying, I will. I will. He says it several times. I will. He's the one who wrote this covenant. Number two, the new covenant is different from the old. Kind of a no-brainer, isn't it? Well, since the the covenant it says it's new, that makes it different then, doesn't it? It makes it different in some extent anyway. But how different? It, well, it's it's think of it this way. It's not just a modification. It, it's not slightly different. We're talking about something radically different. It in in fact, it's radically different from this old one. In fact, it's very basic Nature and provisions are completely different. How do we know this? Well, verse 9 says that God established a new covenant, which was not like the covenant which I made with their fathers. So that's talking about the Jeremiah in Hebrews is talking about the covenant that God made with Israel on Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai. Vastly different from that. The other reason we know it's different is because the the word new, by the way, means it's it's not new chronologically, not new in time. It means it's it's new in its its character, its its basic nature is is different than the old. The new covenant's different from the old. Number three, the new covenant was made with Israel. Now hold on, if you're thinking you're you're included in the new covenant here, hold hold on. Follow my train of thought here. Because verse 8 clearly says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll establish a new covenant with who? With the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Notice it doesn't say church. (laughs) It doesn't say anything else. Is that clear to you? That should mean Israel to you. And so in this regard, the new covenant is, is, is like the old one. It was made with Israel. It was made with the Jews. By the way, God has never made a covenant with Gentiles, non-Jews. The new covenant is not made with the church. It was made with the same people the old covenant was made with, and it's Israel. If you're wondering how we Gentiles are connected here, hang on. Uh, First of all, we need to understand that Gentiles can be beneficiaries of the new covenant, just like they could be beneficiaries in the old covenant. For example... You remember the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 12? Uh, Part of that Abrahamic covenant that God made with Abraham was through Abraham all peoples of the earth would be blessed. Well, that includes you and me, Gentiles. We're all blessed through Abraham, who was 
the first, the father of Israel, right? And so both covenants were made with Israel alone. And sadly, though, Israel as a nation rejected God because they rejected his son. But God never rejected Israel. That doesn't mean that God is done with Israel. And now all of these promises have shifted from Israel over to another group uh, uh, called the church. That's not what's going on here, okay? It doesn't mean this covenant is transferred to anyone else. The covenant still applies to Israel. Again, you say, well, hey, what about us Gentiles then? How do we fit into this picture? Well, guess what? When Gentiles are saved and put their faith in Christ alone, they become descendants of Abraham. Not literally, but spiritually, you become a spiritual descendant. In fact, that's the point Paul's making in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. Look at this. He says, therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. Notice that last phrase. All the nations shall be blessed in you. Quotation from Genesis 12, the Abrahamic covenant. How are you blessed? How do you become a part of Abraham's family? Notice it says, by faith. So the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled in in each believer when you accept this single requirement of the new covenant. What is it? It's faith in Christ alone. And again, Galatians 3.29 says this, If you belong to Christ, look at verse 29, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. How do you become Abraham's offspring? When you belong to Christ. How do you know if you belong to Christ? When you've put your faith in Him and in Him alone. Stop relying on yourself, your your good works, or anything else to get you to heaven. It's only Christ. And then you're grafted in. So for the time being, Gentiles are sharing more in the New Covenant than Jews on the whole. But one day this is all going to change. Praise God. After the the time of the Gentiles is done and and Gentiles have sufficient time to respond to the gospel, Romans chapter 11 says that all Israel will be saved. Christ is going to come back. They're going to see Jesus for who He is, that He is their Messiah, and they will put their faith in Him and be saved. All right, moving on. Why is the new covenant better? What, what, what's better? Well, what's the elements of this new covenant? We see, number four, the new covenant is not based on law. Not based on law. Notice what verse 9 says. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. Well, what was that like? On this day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. So the blessings of the Old Covenant were conditioned on Israel's obedience to the law that God gave them with that covenant. See, they not only had the Ten Commandments, they had 613 laws, which God knew they could never keep. 
And the Bible says you break the law in one point, you're guilty of the entire thing. The whole thing, you're guilty of it. And so the law was meant to appoint them to Christ. It was meant to be a school teacher to show them their, what is sin and the fact that they have fallen short of the glory of God. They need Christ. That's what it was supposed to do. So because Israel, Israel didn't continue, what did God do? God says, I didn't show concern for them. Under the law, his care depended on Israel continuing to obey. Her disobedience did not forfeit the covenant, but it did forfeit all of the blessings of the covenant. So God brought judgment on Israel. Why? Because they didn't obey. It was a covenant of law, but the new covenant was not. Number five, the new covenant is internal. It's not external. It is inside internal. That's the point of verse 10. For this is is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So this is a different covenant, different sort of law. It's something internal. It's not external. Under the old covenant, obedience was primarily out of fear of punishment, but under the new, it's primarily out of love. Formerly, God's law was given on what? Right? Read the book of Exodus. We see God took these tablets of stone and He wrote the commandments on tablets of stone. But here it says that it was written on something else. God's old law, written on tablets of stone, was to be written on people's wrists, be written on people's foreheads. They were to put it on the doorpost of their house. And by the way, even even in that old law, when it was given, it was intended, the intention was for that to be a reminder to people. It, It was to remind people what was to be going on in their hearts. But the people couldn't write on their hearts like they could write on their doorpost. For the Pharisees, it was easier to put Scripture in a little box and stick it on their forehead than to actually put it in their hearts. That was the problem. And so now we have the Spirit writing God's law in the minds and hearts of people who belong to Him. It's become internal. And so in the New Covenant, true worship is internal. It's not external. It's it's supposed to be something real, not ritual. So look what God says about the new covenant in another passage in Ezekiel 36, verse 26. It says this, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So notice the new covenant is not external, it's internal. It's in the heart. It's inside the believer. And number six, the new covenant is imper- or sorry, it is personal. It is personal. Obviously, since it's internal then, the new covenant has to be personal. It's personal for two reasons here. Notice we 
We've seen that God's Word is within believers. And number two, that God's Holy Spirit is within believers. That's what Ezekiel says. Jeremiah said the same thing. Hebrews is saying the same thing. And so, my friends, do you understand that every believer has a resident helper, a resident teacher, a resident friend? You say, where is that in the Bible? Well, not only in Ezekiel, but... John chapter 14, verse 26, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, Jesus is speaking here, and He says, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And that hasn't changed. The Holy Spirit still resides within and, and dwells within believers. So this is personal. Very personal. And number seven, the new covenant brings total forgiveness. And this has got to be, for me, the primary reason why the new covenant is enacted on better promises. Because this is awesome. You've got to look at this and just say, wow, forgiveness? Is that for real? I mean, look at verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. You say, whoa, you mean, you mean I don't need an earthly high priest to go into to that holy of holies and make a sacrifice for me anymore? No. I don't have to slaughter animals anymore? No. You mean I don't need an earthly priest anymore? No. Whoa, that's awesome. By the way, this is what mankind needs more than anything else and what the Old Covenant pictured but uh, sadly couldn't give. Under the Old Covenant, sins could never really be forgotten. Why? Because sins were never really forgiven. They were only covered. That's why the, the high priest had to do this every year over and over. But for those who belong to Christ, the Bible here says God forgives all their sins. And so praise God, praise God, He deals with our greatest problem. And by the way, my friends, uh, this, this, this doesn't mean that God forgets stuff. God can't forget anything. He's all-knowing, right? So what does it mean when it says, God says, I will remember your sins no more? It, mean, it means what Psalm 103 says, He's removing your sins as far as the east is from the west. It's out of sight out of mind, I will never bring it up again. I'm not going to shove it in your face ever again. That's what God means. It means he doesn't, for, it doesn't mean he forgets stuff. He can't do that. He's an all-knowing God. But he's never going to bring it up again. He's not going to hold you accountable for that sin that is under the blood. Well, let's end by looking at the result of the new covenant and that's in verse 13. Verse 13 says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So what's the result of the new covenants? God rendered the old covenant obsolete. That means it is no longer valid. So it's appropriate for these, these Hebrew Christians to no longer offer sacrifices. They don't need to do that. 
they, they can look to Christ now as their great high priest and in Him put their hope. In fact, the old covenant disappeared. The, the, the human writer of Hebrews could not have known just how literal this, this truth could have been fulfilled just within a few years of, of writing this. You see, my friends, history tells us that when the Romans came in 70 A.D. and destroyed Jerusalem, they were very thorough. They destroyed the temple. In fact, all we have left is that wailing wall. You see pictures in Jerusalem. All the Jews go and stick their pieces of paper in the wall and do their prayers and so forth. That's all that was left. They destroyed it completely. And without the temple, there was no more altar. Who knows what happened to the Ark of the Covenant? I I don't know for sure. There's no more Holy of Holies, and therefore there couldn't be any more sacrifices. There's no more ministering priest, because there was no more priesthood. And without a priesthood, without sacrifices, there could be no more Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was finished. And so when verse 13 was written, the obsolete covenant was ready to just disappear. And by A.D. 70, it had completely disappeared. In fact, you could say it had disappeared even before then, because the old sacrificial system was actually over when Jesus died on the cross and the veil of the temple ripped in two from top to bottom, showing that Christ's sacrifice was complete. At that time, Christ's sacrifice was finished with the result that all believers now have direct access to God. The way into the Holy of Holies was open. So praise God, my friends, just like those Hebrew Christians, you and I too can hope. We can hope. Why? Because the age of the old covenant is over and the age of the new covenant is here and it's here forever because we have a great high priest. And so all believers have this great high priest. And this great high priest mediates a new and better covenant. May God enable us to believe that and live it for His honor and glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for our great high priest and enacting this better covenant with a superior leader. We're thankful the new covenant is far superior to the old. May we understand what Scripture's talking about here. May we live in the new, not in the old. May our faith be in Christ and not in the shadow that pointed to Christ. May we not be tempted to go back to to anything that is inferior. May our faith be in Christ and in Christ alone. May we see the old covenant for what it is. May we see our sin. as you see it, and may we run to you to find mercy, to find grace. We can run to you as a God who forgives iniquity and forgives sin and cleanses from all sin because you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. We're thankful that you will not hold our sin against us anymore. All sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven in Christ for those who have believed and put their faith in Him. So may we be those people who continually stand in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.